I'll start by saying how hard it is. In school, that was never me. My whole personality in education was about being the smartest person in the room. The family background being what it is, moved around a lot as a kid. The first school I went to in the UK was an East London primary school and I had a fight on my first day. I didn't want to be in the class that I was in. So I was in, in the class on day one and I was crying my eyes out because I was like, I don't want to be here with all these stupid kids because I'm smarter than they are. And the reality is if you're as an adult working through your career and you're much more invested in being the smartest person in the room, you're going to be bored really, really quickly. It gets to the point where like you're either a narcissist and your entire joy is just from being the smart ass at work. It humbled me enough that I was like, I'm smart, but I'm really not the smartest person in the world. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And as always, you know, I've got an amazing guest for you in the building. Um, she's a very good friend of mine who I highly respect. And by the end of this episode, you are going to know and understand a little bit about her, but you're going to learn so much. So without further ado, I'm going to ask her to introduce herself. Hello. Do you know what? I actually feel like doing this. Something my brother-in-law does whenever he's celebrating. <laughs> You know, you just kind of <laughs> radio moment. It's like, hype, 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 hype yourself. Um, <laughs> uh, hello. Yes, I am Lola Yolayo Pearson. I am delighted to be here with you, Shopware, and talk about everyday leadership. Sure. So like, if you say, if I say, who are you? What do you do? What you're about? How'd you break that down? I am a technophile, first and foremost. I love all things tech. I love all things new. I'm like... Uh, a computer geek who likes to speak plain English and bridge the gap between the no's and the don'ts. Um, I like big, hairy challenges. I steer towards things that are complicated and difficult because why not? Um, and as a boss described me as a few years ago, I'm a bit of a magpie. So career-wise, I like to do things that are new and untried. They look interesting and shiny, but I'm not here to be like, the rinse and repeat patterns and like producing the stuff that I've already done before. So my current version of that is I'm a director of product at a uh, blockchain company called Mistin Labs. Um, and Mistin Labs have designed and built and launched what we call a layer one blockchain. So a blockchain that runs alongside as the foundational infrastructure, kind of like Ethereum. Um, but unlike Bitcoin, uh, and more like Ethereum, SWE, the blockchain, is all about infrastructure. So this is a foundation for running internet experiences. And my job is to try and bring those experiences to life. So 99% of people really don't need to care what a blockchain is or how it works. What they need to see is what problems are solved for me in my daily life. And, oh, that's interesting. This happens to run on a blockchain. Cool. And so my job is kind of to help formulate products and experiences built by Missin Labs, but also things that are built in the ecosystem and make the most of this incredible infrastructure that now exists in the world. Can you talk about new and exciting and not ready to repeat? I can't think of anything 
other than blockchain that's <laughs> that's in that space for sure. I mean, this is it. What do you think, my leader? Like, I don't normally talk about blockchain. I think about that... blockchain straight, yeah. like you said, they'll go to like Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot more to it. And even now, people are yes. like, oh yeah, but that's that's all gone. It's gone quiet. But actually, it hasn't. As it's still relevant, it's still real. It's going to form a major part of our infrastructure, the way we're going to live in going forward in the next couple of years. Absolutely. So, I think the thing, the thing that people sometimes mix up when they think blockchain is they just think crypto is one thing, and it isn't. Right? There is like Bitcoin was the first um, successful execution of a blockchain technology product. So, blockchain technology existed as a theory and a model before Bitcoin. And then Satoshi, whoever Satoshi is, decided to build a currency that happened to be a blockchain product. And so what it did was it proved the technology could operate at scale and it proved that you could build an infrastructure that wasn't owned by a single party. And I think that's the important thing, right? This idea of like decentralization. Normally, a lot of our tech that we use is owned by one person. And I don't know if, if people have, anyway, this is super geeky, but like Tim Berners-Lee, who's considered like the father of the internet, talks a lot about when they conceived the internet and they thought about HTTPS and web protocols, it never occurred to them that like a handful of companies would own the entire thing. It was supposed to have much more distributed access. But the world we find ourselves in now is that literally a very small amount of people own the internet in effect, and they kind of own us. They own what we do, they control what we do, and their whims become how we are allowed to operate. The decentralized model assumes that no single person owns everything and therefore more um, representation is possible. It's not always super effective, so let's not call it like the magic pill for all internet. More access is possible for more people and more solutions can be represented and no single person can essentially decide the conditions that everyone else operates in. So it's like this very like philosophical umbrella that carries decentralization. There's also a reality that actually it could be more resilient infrastructure, right? So like when you think about, uh, when I think about what's potentially possible on um, SWE, which is the blockchain that we've got, we've got internet ready speeds in terms of transactions. We've got a global distribution and the majority of our users right now, the people who are actually interacting with stuff and trying out because it's fairly new blockchain are not in North America or Europe. And as a, as a black female member of the African diaspora, I'm like, hell yes. Let's talk about the fact that in Asia and on the African continent, people are able to engage with our tech and do things on our tech and build things on our tech and like actually engage with it in a way that is not always possible for the next cool thing that comes on the block. Um, the other thing that I like about it is you know, we've kind of all got into this world of like free internet as the model for building scale, which there's an argument that like people can't afford to pay for the internet, therefore it should be free, therefore it should be good. But there is always a cost to the internet. Servers must be run. People must be employed to write code. People must be employed to design it. People must be employed to maintain it. Who pays that cost? 
And so the idea of free internet based on the internet as we have it today is kind of exploitative because you've got to make your money back somewhere. What I like about blockchains is that the crypto becomes an economic incentive for the network. So if I, a developer, write code that is used by other people on the network, I make that money back as the developer and I can be a one man business um, or a one woman business. Um, if I, as an individual, I earn income and revenue by doing things on the network for other people, it belongs to me. I own those assets. They're not, I'm not, you know, exposed to the whims of, oh, I'm just going to take that away from you. No, it is mine. It is a hundred percent mine. And so whilst this isn't like explicitly true for most people today, the thing that I have always really enjoyed about the blockchain concept and the opportunities that things that can be built on a blockchain is they kind of change the ownership structure back to like, as an individual, I own my efforts. I own my experience. I own the rewards and yes, I own the downsides, but I'm not controlled by organizations who have a business model that maybe conflicts with what I want to achieve. And so Blockchain is not so much like a completely new and different internet. It's more, I think, a technology that enables the internet to potentially operate in a bit more of a fairer way. Now the challenge that we've got is it's 13 years old and people are still confused AF about what the hell it is, how it works and what they get to do with it. And it has become a huge scam vector. So because I like a difficult challenge, I'm like, I'm just going <laughs> to get in here and be like, okay, what can I bring to bear from like... 18 years working in normal internet, understanding consumer experiences, understanding human behavior, understanding the quality bar you need to hit, recognizing that just because it's free and everybody can do whatever doesn't mean you can't, you don't have an obligation yeah. to keep people safe, right? You have to think about safety, security, uh, reliability. How do we actually take those things and make them true on a blockchain in the way that they are true on the internet today? And so that's my challenge. And it's a lot of fun because <laughs> it's it's conversations that you have every day like from one day i'll be talking about like you know how do we make it super easy for you to log in um you know how do we make it easy that people don't have to remember like random hash numbers and values which is super complicated for the average person even me i've so lost right. money I'm on, on blockchain right? like um how do we enable that <laughs> right exactly everyone has a story if you've tried it out how do we make it possible for you to have an easy way in? But because it is this very different infrastructure model, how do we keep you safe? So letting you in easy also potentially means making mm -hmm. it much easier for someone to scam you. So how do we serve that accessibility challenge whilst also maintaining a really high bar for security and trust? And like my company, we have literally the smartest brains in cryptography working side by side so like i i join a conversation every monday where my head hurts and we're talking about this concept of zero knowledge and cryptography and i'm like i'm making notes and everything has to be slowed down in my head and sometimes i have to mute the conversation so that i can finish the thought to be like so did they just say that blah means blah and then this and then i'll come back with a question but what excites me about it is because i am the stupidest person in the room and they're doing this research and then i can be like oh so that means we can do blah and blah and your average person gets to have complete trust. <gasps> oh, 
oh hallelujah and then I go take that in so it's just it's just mixing all of my interests in like one super geeky space let me ask you about that Sidika. you know you you get the the quote time and time again be distributors in the room what's it actually feel like to be the stupidest person in the room so I'll start by saying how hard it is because in school that was never me I was like my whole personality and education was about being the smartest person in the room the first one to put their hands up like I was I was such a geek at school that um you know family background being what it is moved around a lot as a kid went to a lot of different schools the first school I went to in the UK was an East London primary school and I had a fight on my first day because I didn't want to be in the class that I was in right I was um, I'd moved from Spain and the education system there allowed you to skip years. So I'd skipped two years of school. And so I was eight years old going into year six, which was oh. supposed to be like 10 in Spain, moved to England. And they're like, here's year four, because that's where all the eight year olds go. So I was in, in the class on day one and I was crying my eyes out because I was like, I don't want to be here with all these stupid kids because I'm smarter than they are. Um, and obviously you're going to look at this new girl who looks weird, talks weird because she didn't grow up in this area or in this country and is crying and not even trying to make friends with anyone. I was a very easy bully target. And so first playtime, somebody thinks that they can push me. But I'm like, um, you don't know who my father is yes. and what I have to live with at home. And you also don't realize that like that Nigerian steel is steel. So I... I just went for it. I was like, you gave me a reason to fight today. And today, today we're going to fight. Um, but I was the geek who couldn't be bullied, but they would always try. But I fought like a cat. I would scratch. I would like, I was small. I was like, I would fight. I would kick. I would punch. And it, there was this instinct in me that like, no, I want to be the smartest person in the room. And I refuse to dumb myself down just because it's easier for you at the same time, that doesn't mean you get to take my bag and just walk away or find it funny. It doesn't mean you get to push me and find it funny. So teachers really struggled with me because I was in the headmaster's <laughs> office a lot. Um, You're smart and a brawler. <laughs> but I was still a smart and a brawler. Yeah, it's kind of like the worst kind of kid. Um, at the same time, so, so going into an adult environment where suddenly you have to pivot from being the smartest <clears throat> person in the room to being the dumbest. The thing for me that, that, killed the switch is whether or not I got bored and the reality is if you're as an adult working through your career and you're much more invested in being the smartest person in the room you're going to be bored really really quickly and so it gets to the point where like you're either a narcissist and your entire joy is just from being the smart ass at, at work or you need to figure out how not to be bored and so thankfully for me, university humbled me a lot. Um, I struggled with my first degree. It humbled me enough that I was like, I'm, I'm smart, but I'm really not the smartest person in the world. And then it kind of gave me this path towards a subject matter that I was genuinely interested in that meant that I could actually get more out of being interested than being the smartest person in the room. And I've just tried to kind of stick with that feeling and as you know, I'm, I love a coach. I've had coaches. Um, I've been therapized to the max. And so I feel like it's not a conflict with my sense of self to be the idiot in the room. I just ask questions. I like make sure I know what question I'm going to ask. And I ask the question and I don't feel like asking a stupid question is a bad thing because, but well, maybe not in my current company, but certainly in previous roles, 
the majority there are a bunch of people in the room who probably have the same question you have but don't have the confidence to ask and so I'm like I'm just gonna lean in and ask a stupid question and, and maybe everybody finds a a good baseline to move on from so it doesn't stress me as much as maybe some people who knew me at school <laughs> would think it would do you always know what you were, what you wanted to do when I think about you and talking about from a young age being a geek focused no. like you got refined the uni but what was that path even before uni what were you thinking of I didn't know what I wanted to do because I was good at so many things that it felt really hard to pick one right so like this is going to sound really arrogant but I remember when I did my GCSEs I decided to pick so my school allowed you to do like the standard set and then you were allowed to pick extra GCSEs if you were like smart enough they gave you the option and I was allowed to pick two extra GCSEs and I remember choosing Spanish instead of French and the way the French department lobbied, like I remember Mrs. Mahara Singham Shah came and grabbed me at lunchtime. She'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you not doing French? Why are you doing Spanish? I'm like, I can already speak Spanish, so I don't need to work as hard. And like, I have to work harder in French. And she was like, you don't realize what you're doing. French is going to be more important. Like she, she really came for me. <laughs> and I, I felt like I wanted to pick the subject that I could enjoy doing but not necessarily work that hard at and so I gravitated towards those things and I did the same thing at college I was like um I really like reading so I'm going to do English language and literature more for me because English language the difference between you know GCSE and A level is a whole other thing and um, so I hated it at college and so I was like when I pick my uni degree I don't want any degree that's going to invite me to write essays and I certainly don't want to write essays about a language that doesn't make sense. So I was like, I'm not doing English. So I went towards like engineering and computer science because I enjoyed it. Again, humbled though at university because I did an electronic engineering degree and that's hard. Like everyone else at uni had six hours of lectures and it was theory and you could basically invent your response. I know I'm being super disrespectful <laughs> to some of my friends, but like it felt to me like they had an easy life. I was doing an engineering subject that had 26 hours of lectures, eight hours of labs every week, and there was a wrong answer. So there was no room for interpretation. There was just, it was wrong. And then um, because it was engineering, we were literally electronic, we were literally wiring circuit boards for computers. And you could get marked down because uh, it's fine. The traffic light works and everything is connected, but your wiring looks like trash. So I'm just gonna, you failed because your wiring isn't neat. And I was like, what do you mean? It works, do you know what it took? to get it to work and then you're going to mark it down because it's a bit messy do you know what I mean so I really I was humbled again at uni but what I did discover was rather than going for stuff that was I was kind of choosing something that I felt was easier than what I didn't like I found topics that I actually enjoyed so I kind of ended up pivoting my approach towards like let me always go towards the thing I enjoy as opposed to go against the <clears> thing that I dislike because if I enjoy it I'm willing to work harder at getting better at it whereas up until uni I kind of had just been like I can coast because it's easy so then I'll figure out what my next move is afterwards by picking the other easy thing and that pivot was was quite important and I think career-wise a bit of luck a little bit of serendipity and yeah, just going towards the things I, I enjoy at any given time. I listened to you talk about failure when I talked about before we came on came on this as well. Was that some of the failure that you experienced at university 
was that is that what's helped you to, to deal with failure now in your career because you've held a number of senior positions in a number of different companies and in what you're currently doing right now and failure is something that you consistently go through mm -hmm. but it's something that can either knock us back but we can learn and evolve and go from yeah. so i'm guessing i'm very curious to learn about some practical ways that people can learn how to be able to use failure in the way that sounds like you have done from a very young age yeah i mean i think there are a couple of levels to think about that like my first brushes with failure for me were quite catastrophic like that that uni experience i talk about it in a fun way but like I failed my entire first year of uni and I had to come home to my Nigerian parents and tell them that I had failed, that if I did not pass the summer resets, I would not be able to continue university. And you can imagine their reaction that they're like super bright, super academic child came home without a pass to the next year. That was humbling. <laughs> I was too old for the beatings but I was definitely humbled by the responses to my parents and I was put in a camp I was kind of like you don't, you're not going it what do you mean it's summer you get to go out you don't get to go out you get to study my mother literally was like rigid day by day um I think the thing that I have learned about failure is there are two types of failure right there is like what you consider to be completely personal failure like you have let yourself down and then there's like a failure in that I tried something that didn't work. So now I need to understand what went wrong and how I can avoid this in the future. I absolutely adore the latter and mm. I try and avoid the former. And the thing about letting yourself down is you kind of need to know what you're about in order to kind of know where you're drawing your boundaries about what is you and what is not you. So. I don't consider a project at work not working as a personal failure because I would like, unless I did the entire thing from beginning to end on my own, that is not all on me. Um, and equally, unless it is my business, quite likely the key decisions were being bubbled up and someone else was driving, right? So it's not all on me. Before you, like I said, just before you move on though, that's not an easy yeah. separation to make because it's like all the project is, in my name, I'm leading it. Therefore, it is on me. So, do you just have you always had that separation from day, or is it something that you have to also learn to do? No, it is something that I learned to do. So, my I think it was probably my first job. I had an incredible boss who decided to sponsor me, right? And we could talk about this sponsoring. He would put me in situations regularly where I had no idea what to do. And then he would tell me that I could do it. And then he would give me time to work it out. And then I would end up being able to do it or not do it. And in that particular relationship dynamic, he taught me to always expose my thinking. So he was like, if you take this away and then try and do the thing and come back, it's either my response is going to be yes or no. If you tell me how you're making decisions on a regular basis, I can help you understand where you might be making a bad decision. And it, that is something that then built on when I was working in agency, for example, like when you're in an agency environment in tech, your client decides, but you have to give them enough information to make the decision. So you always have to externalize your thinking. You always have to become very good at saying, here's option mm -hmm. one, here's option two, upsides, downsides, downsides, upsides, which outcome do you prefer? 
And it becomes a habit that says like at any given point, yes, I'm making the decisions. Yes, I'm in charge of the team. But my probably number one requirement is to make sure that we are opting in to the outcome that we all agree is the right outcome, right? And that means we accept the potential upside and the potential downside. If the downside then comes true, well, we did our best. We tried, we aimed for the moon, but we were open, right? And so that my, where I would let myself down in those situations is if I did a really poor job of communicating decisions and implications to the people around me. If I felt like I had never explained how I was making decisions or why, if I felt like it wasn't easy for anyone to follow me, then of course it's all on me. I effed up because I didn't take anyone on that journey. But the majority of the time, and as I've become more senior, I have realized how crucially important it is to be in that situation. Even when I'm coaching people who report into me, if you don't give me enough information to make a good decision, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a bad decision. So your managing up has to be telling me, here's option one and two. Here's what the implications are. And at any given point, I am choosing the risk that a certain set of implications come through. Sounds like it's a like a negative way to look at things, but like no situation in life, in work is pure upside. Everything comes with a downside. So what you're actually choosing as a leader Mm -hmm. is you're choosing the downside. You're choosing the downside that you think best sets up the environment. And when you're in a startup, you're hoping that you can mitigate the worst case downside at any given point in time. So you're trying to protect the upside that you want, but you're still choosing a downside risk. You're choosing to launch before the product's ready because you need to launch, otherwise you've got no revenue to keep the business going. Uh, You're choosing to pick this feature over another feature because this feature is gonna help your biggest customer stay on board, even though it might wind up some of your people that you know you you were there before. You're always choosing a downside that you believe you can manage and an upside that you're gonna aim for. So like, you know, just being transparent about your thinking to me is the way to make sure that when you fail, it's not a personal failure. It's a situational failure. Like that. like that breakdown actually of recognizing that you're shooting for the upside, but the downside is what you're managing. And I think that's not what happens a lot. A lot of times people just have to I'm shooting for the upside. They don't think about the downside and then it happens. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, no. If you already have that in your thinking and you're holding it, it doesn't take you by surprise yeah. that you can react and move a lot quickly as well. Nice, okay. Yeah, it's, it's not easy though, because I think, you know, especially when you're in a leadership position, you can't be all about the downside all of the time. Like half the battle is motivating people about what we can get, right? So you you also have to be optimistic. You have to lead forward, right? You have to be the person who sees the vision and can take people there with you. But like, if you're actually good at leading other people, you're doing that at the same time as carefully picking the downsides. So you're carefully um accepting the things that you know you can manage to avoid the things that would be catastrophic at any given point whilst also being like let's go here and let's keep doing that and it's it's an art form that's why some you know some leaders are terrible some leaders are great and the rest of us are just practicing for the rest of our lives you know we just we're, just, we're trying our best but we, you still have to kind of find a balance you know in, in both if you haven't already can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. 
which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. And then what's the second side of when you're talking about failure before I interrupted you? So personal failure for me is more complex. And this is like, for me, personal failure is much more about, did I, did I do my best? Right. And so, you know, when I think about that career wise, um, I'm an all in kind of person. I've been an employee most of my career. I've started my own stuff on the side. None of it's worked yet. But when I'm in, it's because I'm like, I love what I'm doing. I really want to be here and I'm about what you're about. And so I go all in. But within that, I kind of have my own, I have my own set of values. Like, what does it mean for me to want this? What does it mean for me to do my best? Um, What do I accept and not accept? And where I feel the personal failure kicks in is I haven't represented my best. I haven't been the person that I have decided is the best version of me Um, or I have accepted what is not good for me or I have allowed something to happen that really infringes on my personal value system and that's when I'm I'm much more challenged by that than I am by like work failures Um, and when the two intersect is in all of the difficult decisions that you might imagine right it's like Um, the higher, no higher, the, you know, you need to sack someone. Did you do your best for them? Did they get to grow under you? The, somebody said something hugely inappropriate in a room that you were in. Do you say something? Do you speak up? Do you report them? How do you handle it? And like those situations are really complicated because I wear them very heavy uh, on a personal level, but you have to learn to, to balance, right? You have to learn to it's not always going to be on you if someone else in the room messed up and you didn't say anything. Sometimes you don't say mm-hmm. anything, but it burns. Um, or like you accept, you accept an outcome that doesn't align with your value system. And you're just there like, am I okay with this? Am I about this? Do I, do I want to represent this? Um, and, and those are just challenges that I think if you're anybody's employee, you're going to deal with those challenges. Like full stop, because it's not your company. You don't get to make those decisions. Um, and sometimes I've been able to navigate it well. Other times it's just like, ugh, I failed. I failed myself. I failed my own value system. And that that's challenged. Actually, I'll tell you a story because uh, a mutual friend of ours is my coach. <laughs> hey, Wendy. Um, and when I was first <laughs> being coached by Wendy, one of the first coaching frameworks we went through was this kind of like transformative coaching exercise. And so I had to bring a question. I had to bring like, what is the thing that I would like to achieve? What is the outcome I would like to be like at the end of it? And I was going into a work situation that already challenged me, right? Like I was looking at it before I was in it and I was like, oh man. And I recognized it because I was like, I have quit jobs in the past. Like I have walked without another job to go to. I have decided to go on my principle Mm -hmm. because of things that look like this. So I said to Wendy, I was like, I can see myself quitting, but I don't want to be in that position again because I think this is ultimately a good thing and this is a new level of my career and I feel like I can achieve more if I stay and I can deliver more if I stay, but I also don't want to give up my principles. 
And through a couple of sessions, she defined my work persona as like the determined warrior. So like I would go to, into battle for my cause. I would go in and I'd be like, ready, I'm squaring up. I don't care who you are. We are going to have some real talk. The problem is when you're a warrior, everything is a war. And then you end up in zero sum situations. So she was like, how about we convert the transform the warrior into an alchemist? So an intentional alchemist became my target persona, which is these two people care about the exact same things. There is no conflict in their value systems, but the warrior is going to go to war and the alchemist is going to find science to create gold from rocks. Right. And so what does it look like? Do you know what I mean? It's like, what does it look like to alchemize a situation rather than just burn the place down? Um, and I think we worked together for like seven months. And it, it was, it was, it became about subtle things. It's like, when I feel like I'm alchemizing, I can feel it in my body at the base of my stomach. When I feel like the warriors in the room, it's in my chest. So my chest is high. I'm breathing shallow. I'm like, I'm They're ready. Like, oh, I can like my body physically tenses when I'm alchemizing. When I'm alchemizing, I feel calm and I'm much more thoughtful and I breathe deeply. And so it was like, okay, if that's what's happened in the situations that you've enjoyed and not enjoyed, how about instead of realizing that after the fact, we try and trigger that, right? So if you're in a situation and you see yourself starting to breathe shallow and you feel it in your chest, okay, I'm going to take some deeper breaths. I'm going to inhale, exhale, and I'm going to try and bring that feeling down to the base of my stomach so that now I'm looking at it like it's a science problem <clears throat> rather than fight. And it's an imperfect outcome like the warrior shows up still because you know <laughs> night job babe till i die the fight is just in my dna but i value the alchemist so so much because you know since we started that process i was in a lot of situations where i would have quit or i would have burnt the place down or i would have just acted on pure emotion and rage you know principled like not for rubbish reasons not just random but like genuinely like i care about this this is absolutely effed up but the alchemist found a better way and so now i always try and call in my inner alchemist i'm always trying to be like okay where am i feeling in my body how am i breathing how do i buy some time if i need to go let the warriors rage out to go get the alchemist because i can't always alchemize in the moment so how do i buy that space to be like okay we got to go through a transformation and like practicing and practicing that daily so that I'm always showing up in a way that allows me to solve a problem. You know? And I think that's for me, that's, um, it speaks actually to the growth and development that we actually go through. Cause there are times when we need to be we're in tough situations yeah. and this is, we're here to actually help us to grow yeah. and to develop and to learn and to channel. Because you have that anger, which is a good thing, yes. but anger used in the wrong way yeah. can burn. But anger used in the right way yeah. can actually change. And that's why I love that framework that you and Wendy kind of worked through to be able to kind of bring those two together. Just recently in my newsletter, I shared something. I was like, it's okay to quit. Like, we talk about, yes, there's certain things you need to quit, but it makes more sense to quit situations yeah. when things are soft, when things are calm, when you've thought things through properly, when you've sent it and you're in, not just going off pure rage, because yeah. a lot of times you might end up having some regret, or it can have some of an impact on other people outside of you. So, but I'm curious, so you said you have quit a number yeah. of times just based on your principles and your values. How many times? 
No, because the thing is, right, sometimes, sometimes, and again, okay, so this is, I, I value my confidence, but it sounds like arrogance. Too. Um, but, like, do these people know who I am? I, I don't care. But you know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's like, you know, there's like a, a Nigerian way of saying it. It's like, do you know who I am? Do you know who my parents are? Do you know what it took for me to be here in front of you? And you think I am going to put up with this situation? I'll tell you about one example. So about 2009 i think it was or 2010 i decided to go contracting and i took a very well-paid contract working for an investment bank which we shall not name um and it was like a 12-month contract they were going on digital transformation they wanted to build an entire new suite of products and they knew they couldn't build it the old way in tech. They wanted to do agile. They wanted designers. They wanted research. They wanted it to look good. Um, and so they built this entire team, hired a ton of us and came in. And from day one, this place was confused about what it is that they actually wanted. Number one, they asked us to wear a banker's uniform. Now, I don't know about you, but like I didn't go into banking for a reason. So to ask me to now suddenly start coming to work in a suit was a problem. And a bunch of us tried, like I got some nice jackets from Next. Um, I would wear black jeans. They started saying, you can't wear black jeans. Um, I would wear a t-shirt under a jacket. They were like, you need to wear a collared shirt. I was like, no, no, no. Um, we would have uh, things like they, you know, at the time I was kind of working in UX and it was like, you need to design this system. I remember being asked to design like a CRM system for traders. And I was like, okay, when am I going to meet the traders and interview them? No, 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 you can't interview them. What do you mean I can't interview them? They're too busy making money. So I'm like, so are you going to give me some training on like what trader systems do? What, what do you mean training? You're, you're the expert on users. We hired you to, I'm like, how do I design a solution for a problem set that I don't understand? And I'm not allowed to speak to the people who have that problem. Can you, and they were like, well, figure it out. So I did, I would sketch stuff. Then I would fold it and I would hide it under my t-shirt because we weren't allowed to take anything out of the building and I would go home. And then the following morning I would come in at 5am with coffee and meet some bankers. And then I would take out my secret papers that I had hidden so that I could show them something. Cause I was like, I have no idea how you do what they do. I got one person, but I got in trouble. I got in trouble for disturbing the traders cause they were supposed to be doing their morning stuff. I was like, how am I supposed to succeed? The final straw came when, um, because we were all kind of tech culture, not banking culture. And there, we were literally like a hundred people hired into this bank for this project, but we didn't know what each other was doing. So I implemented something that I had done at a previous job, which was like, we used to have cake Fridays where you would come in and talk to everyone about your projects. So I was like, let's do donut Fridays. Um, no, we did Donut Wednesdays because Wednesdays were quite quiet days anyway. So I would literally go down. It was in Liverpool Street in London. Go to the Krispy Kreme, buy like 24 donuts and just put them out on the desk and then invite people to just like spend 25 minutes just being like, what are you working on? This got noticed by the more banker-like people and they didn't like it because they were like, what are they doing over there? So I'm like, okay, whatever. My boss pulls me aside and says, um, how about we do patisserie Tuesdays at 8 a.m. in the morning in the meeting in the corner of the room i'm like no one's here at no one's here at 8 a.m in the morning why the hell do we care about patisserie tuesdays do you understand why i'm doing this and he gave me this like 
um it's you know we just we just want to create you know space and it's like i totally get it and he he basically like just completely excuse my french but he shut the bed on explaining to me what the issue was so his feedback was poor i found out that the boss of the space of that entire project didn't like the look he just in his mind we didn't look like we were doing anything so he kind of got this budget to do this but we you know if we were drawing on paper we weren't building anything because we're supposed to be coding right if we wanted to stick stuff up on the walls we weren't doing anything because it's like we're just making the space look messy if we wanted to wear t-shirts and jeans we just looked like we weren't like proper people and he was paying us a lot of money so he had these like really old school views um and I used to get into stand-up arguments with this guy because he would come to our reviews and just basically ask questions in a very antagonistic way. I came to find out this was banking culture, right? The expectation is someone can shout and you just listen. And I'm like, I don't like being shouted at, so I will shout back. Um, and it just got to a point about seven months in where I was like, I think, I can't remember what it was. Oh, I, I saw him shouting at one of the product managers that we worked with. And he shouted her down in her face like this guy was physically standing over her head, blah, 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 coming at her. And she was just kind of looking down. And, and I was like, hell no. So I went and shouted at him, checked she was okay, <laughs> pulled her away. Um, but I didn't get in trouble for it. I didn't get in trouble for it. The next day I gave my notice. And because it was a contract, I only had to give them like two weeks. So I was just like, I'm just going to work on my two weeks. I booked a holiday for myself psychologically. This guy found me and asked to speak to me in the hallway. He was like, why are you quitting? I was like, I don't want to work here anymore. He was like, but you're one of the good ones. I was like, I'm sorry. He was like, you stand up for what you believe in. You're here to fight. That's what we need. We need you to stay. And I was like, no, it is not my job to satisfy your need to fight with people. I'm just not doing it. And I walked away from him. And I, I think for anyone else, it's like great brand, investment bank, great money. You're getting a ridiculous amount and a daily rate. I was like, what do you mean you want me to raise my blood pressure every day to come in here so you can enjoy yourself? And the work I'm delivering is just stressing me the hell out. There's not enough money in the world. Um, and so I left. I found out afterwards that even before I joined and after this guy took a long time to get sacked by this investment bank come and see hey, all of the hey. HR claims against him, including by the women, the woman I had, you know, seen him shouting at. So many harassment claims, so much money was being paid out to people because he was such a problem. And I was just like, I refuse to be one of these problems. I am going to leave now. Thank you very much. And I was, the, the surprise for me is that he came to tell me that he enjoyed the fights. And I was like, this is exactly why I'm not staying because it is not something that I enjoy and I do not expect to be put in this position on behalf of anyone else on a regular basis. You couldn't pay me enough money for it. Yeah, so I left. I think a lot of times we say the royal we, but people tend to make a lot of, should I say, sacrifices and weighing up like, yeah, it's a great brand. Yeah, I'm getting paid, yeah. but I got to do this. So let me just write it out. And like you said, being able to be like, you know what? Nah, this is not worth yeah. my mental health. It's not worth the amount of stress and stuff like that. And being able to just trust yourself and back yourself. It is not always easy. And people are like, yeah, but you're saying from a place of privilege. You're like, no, sometimes it's the privilege is you. Is this what I want? Is this what I need in my life? Was, is this what I need? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It is a privilege that I have. It is a privilege. I have the privilege of being in the right time, the right place to the fortune of my parents it means that my efforts get rewarded by the right experience with the right brands and the right job. So 
I had I left and every job I have left well maybe not in school in um, uni times I leave confident that I can get another job right I'm not leaving with this sense of worry about mm-hmm. where my next role is coming from I know I'm going to get another role and I think that is partially confidence but it is also a privilege that I have because I happen to live in the West where I'm in an industry where roles are abundant. And I started in this industry at a time when I was able to build experience in a way that is not available to young people coming out of university right now. Um, I was put in a lot of scenarios where I was allowed to fail and learn and fail forward. I think that is much more challenging for people today. So I don't want to underestimate the privileged involved. Yes, my value system in, in, you know, my head is high, as people would say, but it's also because I have this privilege that I'm very acutely aware of. And part of me is like, because it ends up being such an important signal for other people, I should Mm -hmm. use that privilege. I should act with agency because black women rarely get to do that. Um, I should aspire to another role where I can be happier because you know what? I'm playing my, I'm paying my tax anyway. I'm supporting who knows what my, my income is not me. It's not just me. It has never just been me. My income is many people's income. Um, so I might as well be happy if I'm going to have to do, if I'm going to have to portion my salary, I'm going to have to be happy while I'm doing it. So I don't resent the people that I am supporting with my income. So like, there's a bunch of things that play into it, but it all boils down to a fortune of being born to my parents and the choices they made. Because if I had been born in a different country, a different slight model with all of my same intelligence, who knows? Well, you've used your privilege in a very, very good way as well. You're one of the the leaders that I see, whether it's been the UK, Canada, and different countries you work for. You've been very intentional about like putting a ladder down for the people and just bringing in other people around you and building diverse teams, inclusive yes. teams and collaborative environments, regardless of where you are. Why has been why has that been super important to you? Yes. And how have you been able to do it when we also hear a lot of leaders saying, I can't do it, there's no talent. Yeah. And we know it's rubbish, but you've been able to demonstrate time and time again how to be able to do it. So I don't believe in ladders. I want to build staircases with handles and like grand staircases and maybe a couple of lifts in there, right? Like I don't, it's it's interesting. (laughs) It's just like, let's let's make it even more accessible, right? So there are a couple of contradictions in there um, that I think I see. So like, again, I, I have confidence in my own abilities and my capabilities, but I don't believe I'm special. I think I am fortunate in a lot of ways I had privilege of access and so what I try and pay attention to is okay I don't actually I am rare enough that I shouldn't assume most people have the same access so I I know when some people talk about equality um, there's this debate about equality of access or equality of outcome and it is very convenient to rely on this idea that people who work hard will make it and that, and you know, the same outcomes are available to everyone else. I actually think equality of access is the fundamental issue, right? And the starting point that most people come from disadvantages them. They're already 10 steps behind everyone else. So this is why it matters to me to kind of build the staircase and say like, it's, it's, um, 
I'm not religious, but like, you know, the way in Christianity, they say it's not by my might. Like I, I, I am the result of a bunch of incidents and decisions mm. made by other people. So I can pay that forward by enabling other people to have access that isn't just easily afforded to them. So that, that is kind of the value system. And I'm not always successful. I'm just one person. Um, but then the way that I do it is, you know, I have a lens that I can apply that isn't a free lens. So like, if you have only ever worked in one culture, if you've only ever been raised in that culture, you might not recognize a good university from a different culture or a different country. When I look at a CV, I can look and recognize a top notch Nigerian university and someone raised in the UK full time who only knows UK universities or like Harvard, which is the only other one people know, may not recognize that that university is an amazing one. And so they might just think this person doesn't have the skills or the training, the educational background. I can see that. Um, or I'm happy to Google that, right? If it's a, if it's a university in India or somewhere else, it's like, I don't assume that the familiar places are the best places. That's number one. Um, number two, I think the industry that I grew up in career wise, user experience, my, the people I learned the most from in my early years were people who didn't have the educational background, even I did. So they were career changers. They were people who had been drawn into the industry because they had an innate way of thinking about what people needed or how to interact with people. And so I found myself being coached by an ex-nurse, an architect, um, you know, people who brought a different lens and perspective. And so my value system in my craft became one whereby I didn't assume that you had to have been taught this in a university or that only certain jobs gave me quality people. I assumed that anyone who had the right perspective could do this job and the perspective that they brought to the table might actually make them even more interesting than someone who's been trained in one way of thinking. And so like, I just try and bring those two things to bear. It's like, I, I, I will look at someone and it's like, okay, what is their mindset? Like I'm looking for a growth mindset more than anything else. I'm looking for like how you think and why you think, not a what you think. Um, I don't assume minds can't be changed. I don't assume you have to agree with all of my values to be a good person. I don't assume um, that you need to have worked in certain places to be good enough to do this job. I actually look at the thing that you're presenting me with and I try and take a view on that instead. And sometimes you take a risk on someone and it's a complete failure and you're like, well, that didn't work. But I try not to over-index on that. Right? It's like, I have had some spectacular successes hiring in that way and like choosing to be around people in that way. And like, I'm just like, yeah, I'll, I'll use those to fuel me and try and think about it. And again, it's, it's influenced things like, you know, in my last job, we had a hiring process that included a, a interview style that I was incredibly uncomfortable with when I went through it. And I was literally like, I, I, I didn't know how to prepare because they didn't let me prepare. And it was an interview that they loved. And it was kind of like, this is how we discover people's innate growth mindset. And I was like, I come from a culture whereby you need to ask me a direct question so that I can answer because it is rude to assume your expectation. And as somebody who was even raised in the UK, I struggled with that interview. And speaking to a couple of other people, I realized, oh, great. It's not just when you're Nigerian. It's also when you're from India. It's also when you're from East Asia that you struggle with that interview because these are very um, 
cultures ingrained in this idea of respect and the recruiter the person who's interviewing me somebody i have to respect and impress so why the hell am i just going to keep talking but the interview they just wanted you to keep talking and i was like we have to fix this so i agreed and i signed it off with my manager and a couple of other people that when i brought a candidate to the table who i felt may struggle with this interview i was going to coach them on the interview so they could pass the interview because it wasn't a technical interview it wasn't a like let's assess your skills it was just mm. a mindset interview yeah, and, I you, know, do. you know what i'm talking about so in that in that in that particular example to me it was like as somebody referring people in is that interview a fair assessment of their actual fit in the company some could argue yes they're not a cultural fit if they struggle with this interview but that's going to end you up with a very homogenous culture inside the company and that's not necessarily what the company wanted so you do actually need to find people who think about the world differently. And so I was like, okay, well, for those people, I won't coach them on the technical interview because we do need to do a fair assessment. I will coach them on this one because they need to know that it's going to be weird and that they need to keep talking. <laughs> and so there are little ways in which you can do your bit. And I'm just, I'm always here for it. I'm always here for it. I don't, you know, I don't have time for it all. Um, my LinkedIn inbox <laughs> ah, scares me. <laughs> Uh, because <laughs> the amount of messages, I I just try not to think about it. It's bleeding into my personal inbox. Like I don't get back to people quickly enough. I recognize that. I accept that limitation, but I will try. I will try and respond. I will try and get back to people. I will try and help. I will try and have coffees. I will do CV reviews. I will do portfolio reviews. I will share the gems because I'm not special. I just have access. So I might as well help someone who might actually be special and just needs a bit of access, right? This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out and from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of the organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions on the line will help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that you'll experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year, but that's something that you're interested in. If you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level. Send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Right, let's get back into today's episode. Isn't that a massive burden for you to carry your shoulders? Like you said, you've got your own job you're doing, you've got your own family that you need to look after as well, as well as looking after yourself. And then on top of that to be dealing with all of this i think i used to feel like i had an obligation i think now i carry it a lot more lightly it's just if i can right i will not save all people i will not get everyone a job it is not my responsibility to get everyone hired conversely i hold an incredibly high bar personally like i only want to ever work with the absolute best people and just because you didn't have access doesn't even doesn't mean you're the best person either right so like i'm not just it's not like a free-for-all for anybody here um but my sense is when i can i do and if i can't i don't 
it I'm not I don't feel guilt uh, I mean I feel guilt about my inbox because there's some you know sometimes that gets a bit high but I don't feel guilt in the sense that it's a burden it's more that I enjoy doing this I'm happy to be able to do this and it would be nice to kind of catch up but at the same time I've been doing it for so long now and people do know that I do this that demand has outgrown capacity and there's no way I'm wearing that heavy it's just you know if I can I will and if I can't I can't and I think if most of us did it that way as opposed to like assuming either I can help everyone or I need to help no one so just help who you can help you know in your little way do something and it's good you know but don't feel guilt for what you can't do because that's life talk to me about the curse of being competent the curse of the competent i don't know if i made this up or if someone said it to me you but made, i've you been made using it let's go it with that this is, so, this is yours this is yours let's roll the with curse it of the <laughs> okay let's go it's mine i'm claiming it okay okay tm tm yeah trademarked um i think the so as i said before like i was good at many things through school and like one of one of the things i've always found myself is like if you ask me to do something i will try and do it and i'll try and do it to my best what happens though is that people find that you can do something that they can't so they keep asking you to do that thing and depending on the situation you're in they may ask you to do everything that you can do better than they can do and instead and 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 what happens in that is you get uh, you get the kind of the the emotional feedback oh thank you so much i'm so glad you're doing this honestly when you do this it's just so much better than when i do it or like everyone is so amazed that you can do all this stuff at the same time so like thank you and you kind of are like yeah man they recognize me they value me they know that i'm working super hard for them but you don't always ask yourself if you like what you're doing if you actually want to do it and if it gives you energy versus drains you and so the curse of the competent is what i call that situation you find yourself in where you're being asked to do a lot and it's starting to feel heavier and heavier and heavier and you're stuck between this place where it's like i know i'm good at it but actually i'm starting to realize i don't even want it and you, you don't know what to do right and so i use that phrase for myself um because i have found myself in that situation a lot and it's it you know i've had to claw back this idea of like i need things that feed my energy and especially when the extra things are not in my job description so no i can't do all of these side things for you i can't add to my job when it doesn't when it drains me if it serves me if it gives me energy if i find myself thriving and i enjoy it of course i can say yes but if the opposite is true i need to stop saying yes just because it allows me to feel good when this person tells me thank you or says that i'm the only one who can do it and i'll tell you this people of color we find ourselves in here all the time because this is how they underpay us and overburden us um or the curse of the competent competent can be the path that someone finds themselves in with the promise of a promo that never happens because what's actually happened is they've made you super busy with things that are off the critical path like your promo is going to come from you being a crafter that is exceptional at the next level it is not going to come because you said yes to every meeting every workshop every parallel exercise that someone asked you to do that doesn't directly speak to your craft competencies right like and that's like generalizing across different companies and stuff but i have mentored people who found themselves in a curse of the company i'm busy um or there's actually an engineering term as well where like 
I can't remember what it's called, um, glue work. There's a great article written about glue work where like female engineers find themselves being the ones to take notes in meetings or to organize the team activity because someone needs to do it. And then everyone's so grateful and it's like, oh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. But then you end up doing more glue work than engineering work. And then when it comes to promo, you can't see your code because you spent all of your time gluing the team together and that is not recognized as work. And so like, I think curse of the competent is the same kind of thing. Like don't be fooled into thinking that just because someone's telling you how great a job you did, that the job you're doing is either the thing you like and that gives you energy or even the thing that you'll be rewarded for. And I'm just, I try and find a balance for myself so that I'm not wasting my time or anyone else's time. If I say no, if I don't do the glue work, if I don't do all the different bits and pieces, it's going to be looked at very, very negatively. We all know when you talk about people of color, for example, using the UK as a good mm -hmm. reference, if I don't go out to the pub and don't build that social capital people, we know how much that can influence your career and kind of slow you down. Exactly the same thing can occur in this scenario. So how yeah. do you balance that and recognize when, okay, I shouldn't be doing this because it's not helping me, it's not serving me, it's not helping me get to that next level. And there are times when actually I might step mm -hmm. into that, but I just need to have my boundaries in place as well around that. So this connects back to the other thing that I said earlier on about like making your thinking transparent. If someone asks you to do something that's extra and you're like, okay, I want to say yes because they've asked me, but I've got all these other things to do. You say, oh, great. I'm so grateful that you asked. Um, hey, look, these are the five things I'm already working on. Is this new thing more important than any of those? Should I drop anything? Because then you've agreed that the priority has been set. That's number one. Number two then might be like, oh, this is um, this is a really great opportunity. Um, I think I have capacity for it right now, but here's a future date where there's a boundary coming. And like, as you and I have agreed previously, this is something that you really wanted me to invest in. Or number three, I am very interested in progression and career progression. This thing you've asked me to do, can you explain how it leads me to promo? how it might help me demonstrate what it is that you're looking for. Like make them connect the dots. And that is the best way to put yourself in, in a situation. I literally did this recently with my new boss. Um, there were a bunch of things that were, that were coming my way because it made sense. And then came the last thing that he wanted and we were texting on the weekend. And I was like, so here's a list right now. And I don't have the ability to do this other thing. So I'm gonna need you to find someone else. And he was like, oh, okay, do you know what? Fair enough, thanks. And it was just this conversation of just like, you've already asked this many things. And he, to him, he didn't necessarily want to overburden me. He just wanted to kind of like consider, he thought I would be the best person to do that thing. But I was like, yeah, but is it more important than everything else? Um, and he needed to make that decision, not me. So I think the way to find yourself not in that situation is to just communicate, communicate, communicate. And especially when it's your boss, you're not saying no, you're just asking for prioritization. You're not saying no, you're just trying to connect the dots between how that's going to get you to your agreed review path or your agreed promo. And then it always feels like you're a yes person, but you're an implications person, right? Do we want this outcome or do we want this outcome? And we pick between them. Not always easy, but I think if you're, positioning it as communication then it's hard for them to say that you say no to things so with your busy lifestyle busy inbox you're starting a podcast 
What's it called? And why? Lost in tech. So, yeah. So this is something my uh, co-host and I, Mamuna, who's an incredible person who you know and who I have worked with. We share this need to build staircases and grant access and to speak to our communities and to talk of talk at like women in tech groups and black people in tech groups and like to advocate for opportunities for a wide range of people to thrive in their careers and we have both done that in lots of different ways we've built programs at our employers we do talks we do mentoring we do coaching there's only so much capacity you have as you are more senior in your career and you have a family and you want to watch TV sometimes. Um, so we came up with this format called Lost in Tech, which is basically like we want to be tech agony aunts to people who are struggling with their careers. Um, touch wood, we have both been fairly successful. We've had long careers to date. We're still enjoying good experience in the tech world that's not true of everyone else or people are dealing with scenarios that we have been in before. So we're inviting people to write to us, send us their letters and we will take, help them think through how do you solve this problem? And because we're all lost in tech together, it's a community exercise. And through that, hopefully we help address the inbox drama. We're like, there's somebody in there who sent me a message who desperately needs an answer. Somebody else has the same question. And so I can help more people with the podcast and we can share more guidance. Um, We've recorded a few episodes already. Our first episode, uh, I don't know when you're launching this, but our first episode came out yesterday from when we're recording this. Um, But we've got letters from people who are trying to define their role, from people who are trying to figure out if they've got an, um, an obligation to a current employer, if they go to a new employer. So we've got a bunch of different topics. We talk about AI, we talk about blockchain, we talk about being parents. We just try and provide this human perspective and lens. And honestly, like in terms of podcasts, I listen to a lot of them, but there's a split between black podcasts and tech podcasts that feels almost absolute. It's very difficult to find a tech podcast where you're talking about, um, tech specifically or things happening in the tech domain that just happens to be delivered by people who are not default white and and I hope I'm not offending anyone by saying that but like she and I have very different perspectives she grew up internationally I grew up internationally but she ended up in the US I came from the UK we share a lens that is complementary but different and we see people who are not often seen and so hopefully with Lost in Tech we're just creating a space where a different type of person gets served by like a very tech podcast and sharing a little bit of our own joys of being somewhat geeks in, in this I industry. I didn't know the episode came out yesterday, so I'm actually looking forward to to delving into it. Is it going to be a weekly thing, monthly thing? How often is it going to be coming out? It's going to be weekly. We've, uh, we record weekly and we've got a few episodes banked, so we will try and maintain the weekly cadence. Um, we've both committed to making the time to make this happen long term. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be an enjoyable process, I hope. Um, and I look forward to just getting more and more letters. The initial letters we've had have been so good already and they allow us to touch on a bunch of different subjects. So getting more and more letters in and different challenges will really help us to dig into like, how much do we really know? 
Um, the other thing we have is we also have experts that we'll call in from time to time. So we have people who are not us, who may be able to provide a different perspective on the question. And so they will also be joining us on the show from time to time to help lean into the, to the writer's uh, issues. My last question for you would be, how do you define leadership? Um, courage. Thank you, Brene Brown. Um, authenticity and agency. Um, I'll start with agency. I think as a leader, you have to lead from a place where you are directing your path because we have all worked with those leaders who clearly don't make any of their own decisions and it's quite transparent and it's difficult to follow that leader. Um, and so to me, having agency as a leader, so I can credibly say why I'm here, I can credibly say what motivates me, and I can credibly say what I intend to do is hugely important. Authenticity is also important because you're just, we're just humans at the end of the day and pretending to be a robot or a machine because you're in charge is BS and everyone can see through that too. Um, but people connect to people. Um, there's a really great book I read a long time ago called Tribes by Seth Godin. I know Seth Godin can be a polarizing feature, but Tribes for me was quite an interesting read because it's a really quick and easy book. And it was this idea of leading from the middle, you know, like being a person that the people who follow you or who you lead can access. And authenticity is a huge part of that. They need to connect with who you really are even while they believe that you're the right person to lead them or, you know, um, or especially when you're going to make hard decisions that they don't understand that authenticity of connection needs to exist so that they can trust you with that decision. So authenticity matters to me. And then the final one is courage because I mean, if there's one thing you're going to do in leadership, it is make really hard, difficult decisions. Some are exciting. Some are heartbreaking but you can't shy from making decisions. Again, we have all worked with leaders who don't decide anything just in case. There may be people, they're let's see people. And it is heartbreaking when you're a motivated person working in a team with someone who just doesn't ever decide anything. So as a leader, you have to have courage. You only get so much input, you only get so much information. And then from there, you have to act. Um, and sometimes you have to act despite the little thing in the back of your mind that says what, what about what about what about and so courage is important there so those, those three things for me courage authenticity and agency i think it's always great to be able to hear someone describe leadership but also to personally know how much you exemplify those three different points so right from the start that this is this is this is why like there's love kicking with Lola, like we can go back and forth on so many different things and we have so many different opinions. So <laughs> but many. But it's always real talk. <laughs> you're always very authentic. You walk your talk, you model everything that you're talking yeah. about. And you're also someone who's very humble with it, um, with all the different success and stuff that you... Am I humble? I sound uh, arrogant. In I'm my just own head, I'm not, you, not what humble. You, what you were saying earlier, I need to fix that. Like, this might sound arrogant to people. Like, <laughs> to who? Like, who does it sound arrogant to? Everything you're saying is based on. There you go. See, there's that self-talk. Right it's based on who you are, yeah. what you're about, what you show up. 
mm-hmm. other people can speak to as well. There's loads and loads and loads of people who yeah. can speak to every single thing that you can describe. So you walk in, me saying, I can say confidently, you walk your talk because I've seen it personally and other people can as well. So it is, it is a pleasure. That. Like there were so many things yeah. that we could just have got into. I was like, you know what? Her time, we gotta respect it. We gotta keep it down. We gotta respect that time. But as she said, they got a podcast now. You can hear a lot more of her thoughts, my minister thoughts. You yes. can write letters. I'm gonna make sure I share the links when this comes out as well. So you can just share. So if you're in the tech world, you can ask them some questions yes. and get that insight. Make sure that happens and just keep on supporting that. Yes. And more importantly, thank you. Thank you for just being real and being who you are Thank and you. coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your patience <laughs> and getting the time. And Come I'm on. super grateful to have been on the this show. This is Leadership. See you <laughs> While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. So I went on my lunch break and I phoned my, um, the job training provider, a woman who actually I'm still very, very close with today, a lady by the name of Lynette Douglas. I called Lynette and I said, Lynette, I'm going home, I'm going home. She's like, what's happened? So I've told her, you know, it was all that, excuse my French here. Do they think I'm a dickhead? Do they think I'm fierce? You can bleep that out, Chopin. (laughs) Do they think I'm that? Do they think I'm this? Um, as I've never knew how to navigate the workplace at that time. You know, if you're unhappy with something or the need to express uh, frustration, I never knew how to do that. So I just walked away. And that was my first ever sort of, right, this isn't for me, but I, I don't